Hello and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Rachel Menzies. Rachel is a practicing clinical psychologist and the director of the Menzies Anxiety Centre in Sydney's Inner West, and also a guest lecturer and research fellow in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. Her research has spanned the fields of clinical, social and health psychology, and she has also received multiple awards for her research on death anxiety, its role in mental illness and its treatment. Rachel has published numerous books on the topic, including the award-winning Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, and Free Yourself from Death Anxiety, a CBT self-help guide for a fear of death and dying, and Existential Concerns and Cognitive Behavioural Procedures, an Integrative Approach to Mental Health. The subject of death may be more common in philosophy papers than in psychology, but I suspect Rachel Menzies thinks we should redress that balance. As I start, I must say we had some difficulties with Rachel's audio. So sometimes it does sound like she is speaking to us from the other side, but there's lots of interesting discussion here. So I do hope you'll persevere. No highbrow questions here. That sounds great. Think. Well, welcome, welcome to Clinically Thinking, and thank you for uh, sparing us the time. Our listeners, I'm sure, will enjoy hearing this. So, I've got death anxiety is a topic that seems to me to be sort of bridging psychology and philosophy in some way. So, I wondered whether you're more of a philosopher at heart who became a psychologist, or a psychologist who embraced philosophy. That's a great question. What do you think? My my, the first year of my uh, bachelor of psych degree, I did do philosophy, but I definitely wouldn't say I'm a philosopher at heart. Uh, I think I've always been interested in history, probably more so than philosophy, and looking at different cultural and historical approaches to to death, different death rituals across time and culture. Uh, so I'd say that's mm. probably had a bigger role to play in the kind of psychology that I ended up working in. Mm. You have read Becker, though, and some Stoics, so I figure there's a, quite a bit of a, a philosopher in you because Becker is something I have managed to get through. So uh, for our listeners, could you perhaps explain a little bit about that, what that crazy book is about? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's it's a, a tough one, isn't it? So that's Ernest Becker's The Devil yes. of Death. So he published that in 1973 and it won him the Pulitzer Prize. It's not exactly the lightest or easiest book to get your head around. Um, essentially, Becker was a, cult- a cultural anthropologist who believed that most of what humans do stems from this drive to try and find immortality. So Becker argued that all of us are trying to do things that leave a legacy, trying to uh, become the best in our career or the best, uh, live the best kind of life according to our culture in order to try and get a sense that we're going to live on after we die. So Becker said that things like, uh, you know, creating great artworks, creating grand architecture like the Pyramids of Giza, the Sistine Chapel, that all of these are things that humans do uh, in order to try and cope with the terror of death. Um, So that was an idea he came up with in the 1970s and since then we have more and more 
scientific, psychological studies that suggest there might be some truth in Becker's ideas. Okay, so how does an undergraduate psych student or why does an undergraduate psych student lean towards that kind of that kind of literature? It's just curious because there's not a lot of clinical psychs, I dare say, that have read that kind of material. And maybe we should and we'll come to that um, and we should have a go anyway. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit more. I'm probably just going to spend a bit of time in your background if that's okay with you. Um, just wondering how that how you came to read that kind of material. Sure. And how it shaped you. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good point because you're right that this isn't something we come across in clinical psychology. It's something that is much more well-known in social psychology. So it was actually through the social psychology units I did as an undergraduate student where I started to get lectures on this theory called terror management theory, which is essentially looking at just that. It's looking at the, the various unconscious ways that humans try and cope with this fear and so it was really Mm. learning more about social psychology more about terror management theory which was based on Becker's work that I started to become incredibly interested in that and I think one of the big things that happen in psychology is that all of us tend to read in our own area so the social psychologists Mm. just reading social psychology Mm. clinical psychs are just reading clinical psych and so there are often Mm. these really big bridges or gaps between these two Mm. areas that mean that often we unfortunately are are missing out on a lot of the really Mm. material happening in other areas of psychology. Absolutely. I I have to totally agree with you. I think there's a big role for bigger conferences where we all get together and look at each other's work and hear each other's work Mm. for that sort of fertilisation of ideas. I think would lead to much broader thinking around a whole range of topics and probably some answers to questions that we don't know say clinically because we live in our little silo mm. over here so you know, kind of your work I think for, to a lot of extent um, breaks out completely of those of that you know that clinical silo okay so how uh, how early in life did uh, psychology or clinical psychology present itself to you as a career option it was something I was always very interested in. Um, my father, Professor Ross Menzies, is a clinical psychologist, so it was something that I grew up hearing and thinking a lot about. Uh, so I knew from a pretty mm-hmm. age that I wanted to do, or at least that I was very interested in psychology, um, but I was yeah. also always very interested in ancient history and, and understanding people on a more societal level as well. So social psychology might have been a thing, you know, for you, given that given that interest of yours, and I guess it, Ross was interested in OCD and things I don't know about, but I, I think you may know that your father and I go way back to AACBT days in the many, many years ago, perhaps before you were on the planet. So, <laughs> but, so yeah, apples and trees, I guess, is what I'm thinking about. You know, that wasn't don't fall too far usually from trees, do they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about then the path of um, how you then made it into where you are now as a, as a psych, clinical psych and researcher. Yeah, so I was hearing about these ideas as an undergrad student and then my dad, who was working as a clinical psych, I was telling him about all of the really interesting things I was learning in social psychology and learning about things like terror management theory. Uh, He was talking to me about a lot of the problems he was seeing clinically and how so many of the things people tended to worry about, if you brought it down to the core, were were fears about death, either their own or someone else's. And so the two of us started talking Mm. a bit more about that. Uh, And then from that, I did my uh, honours project at the University of Sydney, looking at death, anxiety and OCD. 
uh, then went on to do my clinical master's and PhD, essentially in the same topic, but broadening it to other anxiety-related disorders. Uh, and then since then, I um, now work as a research fellow still at the University of Sydney, exploring death anxiety and mental health. Uh, and I've also mm-hmm. opened up a, a treatment and research centre to continue to work more in this area with a team of other psychologists there. Fantastic. So the true scientist practitioner in action. So what we're seeing with you? That's what I'm, I'm striving yeah. for that. <laughs> Words to live by. Uh, you mentioned earlier that different cultures, you mentioned about studying different cultures, and we do know that cultures han- handle death in widely different ways. Mm. Has culture and cultural studies been part of your work? It hasn't been a, a central part of my work. It's certainly been something that's been a big part of the other work that's out there. So there's uh, yeah, you know, a lot of research showing that the the sort of messages about death that come from our culture, these could be messages that death is a normal part of life, that death is something to be celebrated, that those sorts of cultural messages have a big impact on people's attitudes to death. Uh, And this is something we've written about in our book, Mortals. Um, Most of my own research at the University of Sydney is focused more on mental health, but certainly there's a lot of fascinating Mm -hmm. research out there looking at different cross-cultural approaches to death. And do you think that there are clinical lessons to be learned in uh, studying different cultural attitudes towards death? Definitely, definitely. I think, unfortunately, in a lot of Western cultures, uh, death is something that is kept at bay. It's kept at arm's length. It's something we're not really encouraged to talk about. It's still treated as quite a big taboo. uh, And that's Mm. simply not the case for many other cultures across the world. So I think that's something I try and integrate clinically uh, to help people reckon with the idea that there are other perspectives we can be taking here on death. So Western culture has therefore a particular view of death. So do you think that death anxiety itself possibly lives only in Western culture? It's a good question. I think there's reason to think it's a universal part of being human, but that perhaps some cultures are better at better at talking about it, better at normalising it. Uh, it's not to say they're, you know, 100% completely okay with the idea of their own death, but they might be, they might view it as more of a natural part of life than some other cultures do. You, you mentioned uh, how we have removed, seemingly, seemingly removed discussions of death uh, from lots of areas of our lives. And certainly we see that in medicine uh, where we seem to not talk about death until we absolutely have to. And in, even in palliative care in some hospitals I'm aware that it's just it's life at all costs including heroic measures and we only want to talk about death if we absolutely have to even though we all know we must die and we tend to therefore you know we hide away death in hospitals and nursing homes how do you think this has impacted on us uh, societally you know to cope with death Mm. Big questions, but I, I reckon you're a big thinker, so I'm keen to pick your brains. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I think it's a great question. I think we see this on a nationwide scale with things like voluntary assisted dying. We know that the more anxious people are about death, the more they tend to oppose policy changes such as supporting voluntary assisted dying. Um, and we also know mm. it has a direct one-on-one link with actual real-world outcomes in hospital settings. So, for example, we know that health practitioners who are more anxious about death are less likely to discuss end-of-life planning, advanced care directives and so forth with patients. Is that true? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's that's where I think it's 
really important to have these conversations because it's not as though it's sort of an abstract, you know, philosophical topic, but this is really impacting the kinds of deaths that people do experience at the end of life. It seems therefore maybe there's a role for some training uh, for our medicos in this area so that they become more comfortable with their, their own mortality. Is, is, is that the training that needs to happen? I wonder whether you have any reflections as to what sort of training you think would might be useful for medicos and nurses and so forth who are working in this space routinely. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I think a lot of the training that is currently delivered in this space is more about understanding death and the dying process itself and it doesn't tend to have as much of a self-reflective introspective component to it uh that's something that i have tried to work towards contributing to in the last couple of months i've given probably two or three talks to palliative care social workers palliative care doctors across australia because i think part Mm. of the problem with a lot of this is that people aren't always consciously aware of how their own attitudes are impacting their behavior and so if people can to be introduced to some of this research showing that our beliefs about death actually affect patient outcomes affect our own well-being then that's the key i think Mm. to creating positive change there yes i was wondering um on that i'm reminded of a a client I saw um, many years ago, I hadn't done much work with people who were, uh, had terminal illness. And uh, I, I read all the, I read a book by, um, I read a book on treating cancer and I left the chapter out on dying until I absolutely had to read it. And when the person moved to the terminal uh, phase, I, um, I did read that book, that chapter, and it was very helpful, you know, it helped me sort out some of my stuff around how to deal with uh, death myself, but also um, the client in front of me. And once I had some information um, uh, in, in my head and some comfort for myself, I think I just was able to handle that person's own fears much better as they moved towards it. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example, Lisa, of, of how, you know, it's a great example of what we all know generally as clinicians, which is that the thing usually isn't as bad as we expect it to be. So, we avoid that chapter yes. in the book that talks about death, but actually when we get to it, we find that it's potentially really positive and helpful. And I think that's yes. something that, you know, all of us can work on, that if we can start to deliberately face some of these issues ourselves and deliberately work on cultivating acceptance of death ourselves, it makes it much easier to help clients who are struggling with the same sorts of fears. Yes, indeed. So it seems that... Uh, uh, unlike some other areas in clinics like this requires us to do some own self-reflection and personal development dare i say uh before we work in this space do you, do you think that's the case yeah i'd say so i think because unlike most of the fears we work with clinically that are not guaranteed to happen so most of the fears we work with you know fears of being judged negatively by peers fears of plane crashes uh, you know, fears of contracting a serious illness, most of the fears we work with clinically are unlikely to happen or, or probably won't happen. Mm-hmm. It's because this fear, of course, is guaranteed. It's guaranteed that all of us, both patient and yeah. will die. I do think it requires a bit of willingness to, you know, turn that microscope on ourselves a little bit and work yes. with ourselves before delving too deep in this space. So would you call yourself a brave person, Rachel? <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but I'd say I'm someone who thinks about death a lot. 
Um, and that's been very good exposure therapy for me over the years uh, yeah. now that I'm working yeah. in this area. I recall working with another dying person who I saw in um, hospital when he was dying and I, I recall at the end when I left the hospital very late at night coming outside and feeling so alive. Mm. I think I never felt so alive. And uh, it was, I find it hard to explain any more than saying I have never felt so alive, perhaps when my babies are born. But besides that, you know, it was an amazing, an honourable experience to have witnessed his, if, almost his last few days. Is that, is that one, I'm ahead of myself in my thinking, but here and I talk, but is that something you've experienced and noticed when working with people who are in, in this space? Yeah, I mean, I think that if we're truly able to face death and whether that means imminently facing death because we're, we have a terminal illness or whether that means we're making a choice or a commitment to deliberately and consciously face up to the idea of death, I think there can be something in that that is quite liberating and something that allows us to really truly think about how do I want to spend the time I have, how do I create a life that feels authentic and meaningful to me, um, and using that finite time to the best of our abilities. What terror management theory is essentially saying is that most of us unconsciously are trying to do what our culture tells us. So if our culture tells us um, have a family, have a white picket fence, have a career that is big and important, then that's what we try and do because we want to live the right mm. kind of life and we want to be mm. after we die. And there are hundreds of mortality salient studies which which show that. And so what what I'm suggesting and what other people in this space are suggesting is that if we can truly accept death, it means that we can really make that decision for ourselves of how do I truly want to live here? Do I want to keep you know pushing myself to this level at work? Do I want to keep spending time frivolously or do I want to choose choose options, choose behaviours that feel a bit more authentic to me? So in some ways death attitudes shape our life values. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it. That's very, that's very helpful. Changing direction for a moment here. Mm. Psychologists like to try and find ways to abstract to quantify abstract experiences such as depression and anxiety. And we have lots of well-established tools to help us. Can you tell us about your uh, your tool? Your uh, Is it the DABS, I think? That's right. The DABS. Yes. And, and why, why do we need a tool specifically about death? So the, the benefits of tools, I think, in general, I mean, there are kind of obvious benefits with things like, you know, measuring how successful treatment has been. I think that's probably how a lot of us tend to use those measures of, you know, writing our letters back mm -hmm. to a GP to say, isn't it impressive the score I got this person's depression down to or whatnot. Um, this measure in particular <laughs> that I developed has a bit of an additional purpose. So this measure is called the Death Anxiety Beliefs and Behaviour Scale or the DABS, and I specifically designed it to try and guide treatment. So in addition to giving you, you know, an overall sense of how anxious a person is about death, it allows the person to read through and check off what kinds of unhelpful beliefs they hold about death. So this could be a belief like dying will be painful or mm. it's too short, for instance. And then also there's a behaviour section, so looking at what kinds of unhelpful avoidance behaviours is the person engaging with. And so mm. particular reason I developed this measure is so that people can hopefully use it with clients, not just to give a nice total score, but to get a sense of 
what are the beliefs that might be driving this person's fear so that I can directly start to work on kind of investigating those or what are the avoidance behaviours the person is doing so that we can try and target those in treatment. So it's really designed to be um, quite practical as well as a bit of a, you know, conversation starter between you and the client that you're working with. Yeah, I had a bit of a look at it and thought it looked great. Uh, sometimes those conversation starters uh, in outcome measures are uh, almost more useful than the scores themselves, you know, because you can work out where the clients, the beliefs, as you said, the beliefs are in avoidance and track those over time and talk about them. Um, uh, much better outcome measures than the DAS, for example, which is a sort of a coverall and misses a whole bunch of things that are very useful. Yeah. <laughs> I see too many DASs reported and not enough outcome measures in GP letters. And I'm always keen to use outcome measures. I'm always saying to my staff, outcome measures, I don't want to see any DASs. That's Okay, uh, you, your studies have pointed to death anxiety being transdiagnostic in a range of di- disorders. Asking the chicken and egg question: Can we say the fear of death? The fear of death is a primary underlying factor, uh, or is it simply that, say, a clinically depressed person will fixate on death along with other worries and fears? Yeah, it's a really important question, and this has been what my research has focused on trying to answer that question mm. about what causing what so we can say fairly conclusively for some disorders that death anxiety does seem to be causing or driving those disorders and we can say that because we've used experimental designs where what we're basically doing is reminding people of death versus reminding them of something neutral something not related to death and then looking at how does their behaviour worsen? So in the context of OCD, for example, we know that when people with OCD are given a very subtle reminder of death, two brief questions about death buried in a packet of, say, 100 questions, on the later task, they spend twice as long washing their hands, they use more soap, they're desperately trying to clean their hands more after being given this very subtle quick reminder of death, say, 20 minutes before. So we can say pretty conclusively that in uh, OCD, in panic disorder uh, and in illness anxiety, um, that fears of death seem to be actually driving these disorders. Uh, That, of course, leaves a lot of other disorders out there that we don't know at the moment whether it is the case, as you said, that depressed people are just more likely to think about death or whether it's that dread of death that's actually causing them to experience depression. One cause of that, of course, it's probably not going to be the only cause. Um, so that's where we need a lot more research on that topic. So what's the next stage in the research, uh, your list of things to do? Oh, how long have we got, Lisa? So <laughs> we've got a few studies at the moment looking at hoarding disorder. Um, we do have a study at the moment looking at depression, um, some studies looking at anxious behaviour in the context of health anxiety again. Um, we did a study earlier this year on muscle dysmorphia. So we've got a number of things out there or coming out there. Yes. Um, really, yes. this it's such an exciting space to be working in because there are so many questions that we can be asking. I've got a couple of questions around this. Um, I, I have a client question, actually. I have a client who um, is a single parent for a, a young teenage boy and uh, she has health anxiety and some generalized, and generalized anxiety. And we both worked out that her fear, the underlying fear, phenomenologically, is the fear that she'll die. Not so much death in a minute, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, 
um, and that her son would be abandoned, he'd be alone because she's the only parent. And so whenever there's a threat to her health in any way, shape or form, a lump, you know, a sort of a lumpy thing, a strange sensation in her body, some fear about work, it triggers, goes back to this to this fear, this anxiety, and we, we have, as a result, really been able to certainly not been able to apply some sort of 12-session GAD treatment mm. or health anxiety treatment because the, the underlying fear is about not being present for her son. And I think as he's got older and more independent, that's um, uh, ameliorated somewhat. Mm. If I'd taken a death anxiety lens, what sort of perhaps what sort of things might I have thought about that I haven't thought about until now as a clinician? So what a death anxiety lens would probably look like in that case would be rather than necessarily disputing the likelihood that she's going to die, um, trying to look at some of the beliefs around what would happen if she died, I suppose. So looking at, you know, what would actually happen to her son if she were to die suddenly looking at data mm, showing mm. most children actually do recover from the death of a parent you know it's not to say they're not affected by it of course they are but that most children are still able to develop into healthy you know functioning adjusted adults after losing a parent so those would be some of the sorts of things that that might be considered if you were coming at this from a death anxiety framework essentially trying to challenge some of the the cost there and trying to look at the evidence in terms of what would happen to her son if that were um, the case, rather than specifically focus focusing on disputing the idea that that might ever happen to her, mm. essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Do you think then that all anxiety disorders, I, I might be ahead of myself, that when we're working with anxiety disorders and the OCD, I think you said panic disorder, GAD, do you think that there's that death anxiety underpins all the anxiety disorders? Is that the, the research is showing? Yeah, so, you know, I certainly want it, wouldn't want it to sound as though we think this is the single thing explaining everything. Um, yeah, right. There are links between death anxiety and GAD, though, as, as one example, but, you know, it's certainly not the case that this is going to be relevant for everyone. Um, you know, for example, someone might have health anxiety, but their fears might be around having some kind of permanent disability rather than death necessarily. Um, mm. Certain presentations of OCD that actually don't seem to be related to death anxiety, uh, that being sexual obsessions in OCD, don't seem to have any oh, yeah. connection to death anxiety. Um, so, you know, it's certainly not to say that all of them are related, but I think starting to probe little deeper with clients about what is it that they fear is there a common theme there are there things they feared in their past that might be related you know when they were a child did they fear monsters under the bed or did they fear uh, you know the house catching on fire or, or other sorry to interrupt there but i think there are monsters under the um, there were yeah. monsters under my bed crocodiles and they were definitely in the wardrobe but i blame this book i read when i was a kid so <laughs> i'm definitely on monsters and that's not a fin fantasy rachel that's true okay i'll, I'll Every time take I your word I yeah i was <laughs> in the room lisa so i'll have to take your word that that was the case <laughs> No, more seriously, I thought that that's what every toddler believed, that there was a monster living under their bed and then, that, and then as they grow up they realise that that's just, you know, not the case. Yeah, um, hopefully. It's, it's interesting. So a lot of kids will, you know, people often think that this isn't something that really affects kids because kids don't really understand death. But actually we know that children by the age of 10 
have a comprehensive understanding of death and that their fears of death start to increase as they start to understand it. So if we think about common childhood fears, you know, again, fears of dogs, fears of monsters, fears of the dark, all of these in some way come back to some kind of physical threat or danger. Um, and those fears don't seem to go away. It's just that the topic changes. So now maybe instead of being worried about um, dogs or monsters under the bed, now I'm worried about car accidents or now I'm worried about um, getting really sick, for example. So it seems like the kind of, you know, the topic, I guess, of the fear changes across time, even if that underlying yes. fear might still be the same. And I, I'm wondering perhaps whether the, it's the extent of the fear that, Lots of kids have those fantasy type fears that, uh, that are developmental and resolve. But when it comes to clinical attention, perhaps that's when we might consider that the fear is likely to metamorphose, if you like, into something actually also more developmentally appropriate, uh, well, inappropriate, but more consistent with the de developmental phase. Is that is that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, all of this exists on the spectrum, and so you know, a certain yeah, of course, yeah. from danger is normal and to some extent, you know, healthy and adaptive and protective. But if it's starting to interfere mm. with you know anyone's life, whether they're a kid or an adult, that's when we'd be saying this is yeah. just looking at more closely. Yeah. So, in, and I know you covered this some of this in your webinar. Um, for the AAPS Clinical College um, in the second one, I think. Uh, but just for the purposes of our listeners um, and and doing assessments, right? Thinking about clinicians doing assessments, for, are there some questions that you think we could add to our armamentarium, you know, our interview questions that might give us a bit of an insight as to whether uh, this client in front of us might be struggling with an anxiety disorder that has a death anxiety underpinning it or as a primary death anxiety so if someone was presenting for something that they weren't explicitly saying they were fearing death then things like using a downward arrow technique of you know okay you've told me that you're very scared about um flying can you tell me what it is about flying that you fear you know or you tell me that you, you know you're scared of cancer or you're scared of heights or you know whatever it is um what is it in particular that you worry would happen to you if you have to do that? And so sometimes people, mm -hmm. a couple of questions like that will get pretty quickly to, you know, mm -hmm. fall. I don't want to, um, I don't want the plane to crash. Um, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to die or whatever it is. Um, so that's, you know, one way. I think often people just need a couple of mm -hmm. probing questions and they'll say it themselves. Um, mm -hmm. You can also, of course, explicitly Ask people if you feel like it's relevant, if, if you feel like you're picking up themes of, you know, their own death or other people's death being an issue for them. You can ask them, you know, it seems like some of these fears come back to fears around danger and harm. Do you often find yourself thinking about death or, you know, how do you feel about death? Um, those would be some of the sorts of questions just to assess if it's relevant for the person. Clinicians have been 
telling clients that anxiety isn't bad for their physical health for years. I was listening to your APS webinar last night. And for those of you listening who aren't APS members, this is the Australian Psychological Society um, CPD um, Continuing Professional Development webinar series. And Rachel was kind enough to provide some webinars for us. And uh, in one of them, I I think I heard you say that uh, death anxiety is a a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Is that right? So anxiety in general is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, they don't know why that is. They're, you know, it, it's possible that it's not so much the anxiety itself but more the unhelpful coping strategies people are using. So if I'm anxious, I smoke more or I eat more or you know, okay. I avoid, I stay home, I don't exercise. Um, so anxiety, broadly speaking, increases your risk of cardiac events. Um, but it's... Oh, but there's a... There's an intervening, there's a moderator or something in there that we don't know what that is. Yes, it's not quite clear. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's pretty important. Uh, as a bit of an aside to the to the topic of death anxiety, because in terms of anxiety per se, um, my understanding is that worrying about your health or your, your pending death um, does not cause any damage to a, physical, to a person. Uh, so long as they don't eat more, smoke more, <laughs> take drugs or the like. You know what I'm saying? There's no direct relationship between cognitive events such as worry and the physical events that go with them and cardiovascular health. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. because That's really important, I think, because I know we have been telling clients over the last 20 years that you can worry all you like. It's not going to harm you. You think it's going to harm you. That's what you're worrying about that's going to harm you. No, 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 no. No, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, I, I am guessing that that sort of finding came up in the webinar. I can't remember, but I'm assuming it was because I was doing a study at the time looking at people with cardiac disease and how their cardiac disease was increasing their anxiety because now I have to worry about my health uh, because I've had a serious cardiac event. And so it seems like it's this bidirectional relationship that people who have you know, cardiac problems or health problems are then more at risk of anxiety. And then, of course, anxiety can increase the risk of some health behaviours, cardiac being the main one. Um, you know, that being said, obviously, <laughs> it's not always helpful to tell people you better stop worrying because it's going to, you're going to mess up your heart if you keep going. Yeah. And that's not help. You know, that's not particularly helpful. That being said, I suppose for people who, you know, a really common belief in this area is that my death anxiety is protective, that, you know, being scared yeah. of death keeps me safe, keeps me healthy. And so people can sometimes be uh, underestimating the impact of their death anxiety because they view it as something that is helpful and protective to them. And so I think using it with a bit of a grain of salt that sometimes actually pointing out to people that anxiety is not helpful to their health, you don't have to say it's damaging, but it's not helpful uh, and we know this based on looking at life expectancy between anxious people and non-anxious people, that there's no difference. So clearly people who are anxious mm. aren't living longer. They're not you know, able to actually extend their life mm. by being cautious and safe. Um, so I think it's a useful bit of knowledge to have up your sleeve for people who believe that their anxiety is actually helping them. Um, but obviously you've got to use that carefully. You don't want people then panicking because they've now got a new thing to worry about. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this leads me back to you know the, the positive and negative uh, beliefs and GAD that Adrian Wells and his material some years ago came up with, um, and you know that you can see that, that those views around pos- the positive views and anxiety and the negative views maintained the anxious, uh, worrying cycle. Um, uh, and it seems that that approach that that he has is not that dissimilar to the approach you have, and it's it's, it's reminding me of his work. You know, mm. um, the views we take of things cause us uh, to feel anxious and to behave in anxious ways, and so forth. So, what what do you think is the is the, the morbidity morbidity around um, death anxiety? What's the impact for people who have a specific death anxiety? I mean, not so much the panic, panic and the OCD, but the people who have just sort of pure death anxiety, how does that impact people? It can have a really substantial impact on people. So if, you know, it can often really limit their behaviours. So they might avoid uh, flying. They might avoid uh, driving too far away from medical help. They might be, essentially, they might just be missing out on the moments that they have because they're so scared about it ending. So they might find that they're not present in the time they have with their children because they're so anxious about the idea of leaving their children behind, for instance. Uh, Or they might have very restrictive diets because they're worried about eating foods that could increase their risk of death, for example. They might be, you know, weighing and counting every meal because they don't want to consume too much cholesterol or they don't want to consume too much of this. So it can have pretty broad impacts on people's lives. And, of course, you know, for people whose dread of death manifests more in depressive-like symptoms, it can just lead them to give up on pursuing anything because if everything I do is going to one day end, then what's the point of me, you know, uh, going to work? What's the point of me doing nice things if all of this is eventually going to turn to dust one day? Okay, so percentage-wise in your experience, do you have a sense of where the disorders are, where death anxiety uh, is predominant. Like I know the literature would say what it said about where it tends to be, but do you see in your practice more clients who have death anxiety who are depressed or is it more an part of the anxiety profile? What's your experience of that as a clinician? Yeah, it's a good question. So I don't know the data on this, but anecdotally, anecdotally I would mm. say even though it can come up both in depression and anxiety, I probably see it more in anxiety. Uh, I think mm. there's probably a more broad range of reasons that someone could be dealing with depression uh, versus, mm. you know, like we've touched on a lot of the common anxiety disorders coming down to the fear of the heart attack, the fear of heights, the fear of flying, the fear of cancer or germs. So I, I would probably see a larger percentage of anxiety cases where death anxiety is relevant. Um, but, you know, of course, people can have depression that's stemming from this as well. And and I'm curious, like, is the anxiety, under the the death anxiety underpinning for anxiety, I see uh, certainly with, you know, germs and OCD or health anxiety or fear of death uh, in, or getting sick with GAD, not so much trauma maybe, but I don't know. But the depression I see, I've struggled a little bit to get a sense of that and see more of the melancholia and the, and the, and the moving towards death as, as, a, as a solution for the pain. Can you help me understand how death anxiety might feature in a depressive presentation? So 
if someone's depression was stemming from, in part, from death anxiety, that it might be that they just have a general feeling of pointlessness and meaninglessness. So if I know that, you know, when I die, no one is going to remember me and that's, you know, eventually going to be a fact. Within one or two generations, people are not going to remember me. Um, there will be a time on earth where no one will ever know that I lived. Um, that, that can create a feeling of pointlessness and meaninglessness. What's the point of me doing anything if that's the case? Um, or what's the point of, you know, even, even sort of sadness or grief at the idea that other people are going to die? You know, sometimes people will be very stricken by the idea that everyone I've ever known is going to die. Um, and so how can I cope with a life where that is the case? Um, mm. Certainly for some people, uh, suicide, suicidal ideation can be the one area where this fear is genuinely protective. And so if someone was actively suicidal and they were saying that, you know, the only reason I'm not acting on this is because of, you know, my terror of death, then that's where we obviously would, would not want to treat the death anxiety and we would want to get them to a point of safety first. Um, so that's that's where there's a very complicated relationship with death anxiety and, and mental health, particularly mm. in the case of suicide. Um, but, you know, that being said, people can be suicidal and um, and still be anxious about death. They can say, you know, I, I don't want to live, you know, I don't want to have to deal with the pain of losing everyone I've ever cared about, for example. Um, so those mm. are just some examples based on what we've seen clinically and also based on some of the research. And just pressing into that a little more, with that kind of presentation, that pointlessness and hopelessness, which you, you know that you often see in melancholic depression, how would you handle that clinically? So part of the problem when people are taking that view, when people are uh, just terribly sad and upset about the idea of it all ending or feeling like that makes life meaningless, part of the problem is that they're taking as a given that they were going to be here in the first place. Uh, and what try and do clinically is trying to point out the unlikelihood of ever coming into existence in the first place. Richard Dawkins has a really nice quote to this effect in his book Unweaving the Rainbow where he says we are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born and so starting to help the per help lead the person to this view that the statistical chance of them ever having been born in the first place. So for that to happen, their parents had to meet and reproduce and produce the exact string of DNA that was going to lead them to be born and so on and so on for their parents and their parents and their parents. And so starting to help people see that the chance of them ever being born is so ridiculously slim that mm. to be devastated that it's all going to end is almost missing the point here. So if we can mm. help people feel a bit more of a sense of awe or gratitude for being here in the first place, it's starting to shift mm -hmm. that mindset away from feeling like this was all, you've, you've been ripped off basically by life having to end. Right. It sounds really interesting. I'm wondering about whether we need a wonderful little story. Once upon a time there was, I, I'm reminded of a, a workshop I went to where, um, the presenter, Catherine Hines, you may know who works in the EMDR space, read a lovely story that was really illustrated the point without having to just, you know, try to ram it down our throats, you know. And uh, these kind of metaphors and stories often help people to understand, help us all understand, aha, you know, this is, oh, like, this is crazy that I ever got to be in this amazing human form. I'm here. And so 
when I cease to be here, it will be like it was before. It, this brings to mind this notion of symmetry. Is this a stoic notion? This, can you help our, our listeners understand this notion of symmetry and perhaps how that might be useful in a, in a clinical context? Sure. So the symmetry argument does stem from stoicism. So stoicism, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was a school of philosophy that originated in ancient Greece and Rome. Um, people like Aaron Beck, Tim Beck, wrote about how they based cognitive therapy in part on this philosophy of Stoicism. And the Stoics had this really nice argument when it comes to death and particularly people uh, people's fears about the idea of not existing. They talk about this symmetry idea, the idea that all of us have experienced non-existence before, that for billions and billions of years before I was born, I experienced non-existence, I didn't feel, I didn't think, uh, and I was perfectly content through those billions of years uh, and that it'll be the same experience after I die. I'll be in the same state of non-existence that I was before I was born. It's the sort of idea that for some people can be really powerful and transformative and for other people, you know, it doesn't seem to, to take the edge off, so to speak. But for some people who particularly fear the idea of not existing, the idea of uh, not being present, it can be a, a particularly useful idea to introduce them to. That sounds very interesting. So that it's before, has gone on for millions of years, and the future, once you're died, has, will go on for millions of years. And at the moment, you just happen to be in existence. It does feel a little strange to me to think, oh, in the past millions of years, I didn't exist and I was okay with that. It's a bit like, but you weren't, you know, it's a full stop. You weren't. So there's nothing. And it is interesting to see that some, I don't think I'd be one of those people who'd make much sense of that. I think because I go, oh, but, but I wasn't before, mm. you know, and how could I be okay with not being when I wasn't? Yeah, I think it is really, it's really idiosyncratic. I think there are a lot of sort of arguments or ideas in this space that just work really differently for different people um, and that's where, you know, getting a bit creative and having a number of different tools or perspectives up our sleeve is really important because there are going to be some ideas. You know, I've, I've seen some people who once they think about that idea, it almost stops the fear in its tracks because they sort of, right. okay, I'm, I'm picturing death as this sort of abyss of nothingness but I don't really feel that way about, you know, the years before I was born, so why am I projecting this onto death? But there'll be other people who take your exact view, Lisa, and just don't find that that seems to really do much for them. So, you know, yeah. Then again, I haven't got a fear of death, so I'm probably – well, I don't think I do. Perhaps I do. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but um, therefore it probably isn't relevant. I'm just, you know, extemporaneously working this out in my head as we talk. So I'm using the opportunity to speak to, an, you know, an expert like you and think about my own stuff. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> You have to put up with me. <laughs> okay, so it seems that psychoed, you know, is really important in this process. Um, uh, it's important in every process, psychological uh, treatment process, but it it feels like it's particularly relevant here. Is that the case? Yeah, I'd say it is. I'd say people sometimes take, I mean, we know that in general often people take their thoughts as facts, but I think that's probably particularly true of death, that people think, hmm. you know, I I feel death is terrifying. So, you know, that's the end of that. That's that's my view and what else is there to discuss? And so I think starting to introduce to people the idea that actually it's our beliefs and perspectives on death that make it 
feel terrifying or make it feel normal and acceptable, uh, that that's really the key part. Uh, and, of course, the mm. sorts of psychoed you would do in a lot of other anxiety problems, you know, talking to people about avoidance and why that's not helpful in any anxiety but also in this particular anxiety. Um, that's also a really key message to get across quite early on. Yeah, so there's a lot of overlap, isn't there? As I listen to you and think about it, there's a lot of overlap in the way we treat it anxiety just all kinds of anxiety disorders and now we're thinking about death anxiety because it's quite a new field isn't it i mean how old is this field it's very recent so it was nine years ago now that we first published the paper arguing that death anxiety is transdiagnostic and it's only been in probably the last five or so years that we've had um, studies coming out looking at treatment effectiveness for this fear it's fascinating really because considering the ubiquitousness of death <laughs> strange that we haven't thought of it before you know and the, and the philosophers have been talking about death forever and yet we clinical psychs have not so well done you um for doing that and filling that gap for us if we generally overestimate the distress associated with the dying process is the role yeah is the role of psychoed going to be particularly really useful for people actually do you know if that it seems that that's what happens for everybody they overestimate how painful it's going to be it seems to be quite powerful for some general education for people around you know it's their death and dying process yeah I think that's that's really important for people and particularly for people where that is the main focus of their fear where they're worried about what dying itself will be like the dying process rather than that non-existence that we touched on um you know educating people on studies which show that most people don't die in severe pain talking yeah. to people about the dying process what that involves um what that tends to feel like for people um that you know those sorts of approaches of giving people the information uh, tends to be helpful in in changing their perspectives on death I certainly remember I had a friend die um, last year and I think there was a stage when he learnt he was going to die that he was, struggled with anxiety and depression and that notion of not being. Mm. But as the death became more real in those last weeks, there was a you know, realisation that it was peace and there was love and there wasn't pain. Um, what pain there was was well managed. There was a, quite a big shift in um, the way he felt and approached, I think everyone felt better. Is that something that you've seen um, in your life and your clinically? Yeah, yeah, I have. And I think it's in some ways most notable when people have dealt with that kind of anxiety for most of their life. But that's where I think it's, in my experience, it's been particularly striking when you've seen someone spend their whole life fearing their own death, being terrified about the idea of being taken out of life by some kind of fatal illness. And then when they get the cancer diagnosis, it's almost a bit of a light bulb moment or awakening moment for them where they realise that actually they're coping with it better than they thought despite decades of this being the big fear. Um, so I think those sorts of experiences mm. are really important for people to be aware of, that people often do cope better than they uh, expect and anecdotally I think that's particularly true of people who have lived that thing their whole life 
I tell myself that when I worry about the future, that that's for my future self. And most of the time that is sufficient and that, that version of me will be able to cope with it. So I imagine myself being 80, if I'm that, if I'm blessed to get that old, that, that my 80 year old self will be quite different to my current self and that she'll probably work out how to manage things and have different expectations of what life is, what is life is going to be like. Does that sound like something that's adaptive, Rachel? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely because I think it's also usually true and it's usually backed up by research. I think the ageing is a really interesting point because I see a lot of people who are in their uh, 20s or late teens, this is around the time when death anxiety usually peaks. So typically people are most anxious about death in young adulthood. And so I see a lot of people around that age who come to treatment saying, you know, I'm terrified of death now. And if I'm this terrified now, then how am I going to cope when I'm 70, 80? You know, surely at that point. You'll be worse. Yeah, I'm going to have just collapse with distress. And mm. actually the opposite is true, that the closer people mm. get mm. to death, the more accepting they feel of death. And so, again, I think that's a useful thing for clinicians to be aware of so that if people are saying, you know, I'm terrified now and this must only get worse, that actually we have consistent longitudinal data showing that the opposite is actually true. Interesting, interesting. I like it, Rachel, when I'm reassured when when I hear that my my theoretically adaptive behaviours and views are backed up by the research. That's <laughs> great. Good, when that's good to hear. handy when it happens. <laughs> Very handy. Do you, uh, a couple of questions, um, and then we will be thanking you for your time again. Is there any relationship between climate anxiety and death anxiety? You've got your finger on the pulse, Lisa. We have just submitted uh, uh, an ethics application for a study looking at that in the last week, um, uh-huh. and I have a, a student jack boys who's preparing to do his phd on that starting next year so so far there there have really not been as many studies as you might think given there seems to be such you know a, a, a link there um you'll have to stay tuned you'll have to see what comes out of the findings in the next year but i think you know i think we're right on the money i think clearly one of the big reasons people are worried about climate change is of course the fact that that could very well spell doom for us and the whole planet um, so we'll have to see what, what comes out of that. Well, I especially was thinking about it around the, you know, teenagers and one of our previous podcasts, uh, we did interview one of the, ex- your, at Sydney Uni's experts around this very, very topic. So we look forward to hearing about that. Is there anything else you would like to, to tell our listeners that you would think would be really useful that they could put into practice with the next client they see after they've listened to this to this podcast, what would that be, do you think? I suppose one of the main things that I would encourage people to do is to start reading into areas outside of their own work. And I think stoicism is going to get people pretty big bang for their buck. I think that the Mm. teachings of stoicism, which are essentially that um, the key to a happy life is focusing only on things within our control and practising stoic indifference to things we can't control, is I think such a core component to grappling with all kinds of anxiety and particularly this year around death. So, you know, if there's one thing people go away and read into after this, I think stoicism would be a really good first starting point. Um, If you're interested, we also have 
uh, I published an article about integrating stoicism into therapy, uh, and that's freely available. You can find that on the publications page of our website. Um, mm-hmm. So I think just you know, starting to read outside your area and uh, starting to link. Taking a broader interest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As we talked about in the beginning, like that sense of a link between the various fields, I think is so rich. I, I've been to conferences where I, I remember not going to any of the clinical stuff, going to all the forensic stuff, all mm-hmm. the social psych, um, and and just that leading to richer thinking and richer discussions with people I met over coffee because they weren't all clinical psych. Sorry, clinical psych. I do love you, but we do not know all the answers in spite of how arrogant we sometimes are. (laughs) We can stand to learn a lot from each other. Mm. Uh, We will be sure to put uh, links um, to the Facebook page, to all the various books and articles and to your website. Uh, I have just bought on the strength of this, I bought the one, that you and Ross put together, uh, is that the one with the, the transcripts in it? Oh, yes, Tales from the Valley. I thought that would be really useful um, uh, to, because it was transcripts and just to really read around how this might look mm-hmm. in a therapeutic session and uh, so in a therapeutic se- setting. So I know there are other books. Um, would, would there be a, a – have you written one on stoicism or one that would be approachable for the – the mere clinical psychologist listening to this podcast? Yeah, definitely. So there would be two that I would probably most recommend. One would be our book, Mm -hmm. Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. Um, That actually just yesterday was awarded the American Psychological Association's William James Book Award. Uh, So Mortals will give Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Mortals will give you a really broad overview of the various ways that this fear impacts human behaviour and it also has a chapter on stoicism and cultivating death acceptance. If you're wanting something a bit more practical and hands-on to use with clients, um, I brought out a book with Professor David Veal in the UK called uh, Free Yourself from Death Anxiety and that's a CBT self-help guide. So it includes things like... um, handouts for exposure exercises, handouts for thought-challenging brilliant anxiety. So if you're wanting something to kind of take away, photocopy, use with clients, that would be the best place to start. I can I imagine that lots of clinical sites will feel way more comfortable with that than a book on stoicism. So I think that one is absolutely fantastic. We'll make sure we, we'll, uh, we'll draw a link to that. Um, well, uh, I think clearly you're a young woman to watch in terms of your future career. And we look forward to, uh, I look forward to seeing that and climbing to great heights. Um, but thank you um, in this moment for spending some time talking with me. And I'm sure our listeners will be very interested to hear what you've had to say. And we will be sure to put all these links up on the, the page. So thanks again. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for having me.